we'll come today to the second of the five principles of warfare that we began discussing last week. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you who have given us your word and also given us your Holy Spirit to help us understand it, we ask that in this hour your Spirit would enable us better to understand these things and to begin to look at the world more and more through your eyes. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. The five principles of warfare that we set out were the principle of assassination, the principle of offering peace to the enemy, the third principle that the land and society is not to be wasted in warfare, the fourth is that all men are required to participate, that is a universal draft, and the fifth is localism. Last week we talked about the principle of assassination and we have nothing further to say on that. Today we'll come to the offer of peace, and that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which, and beginning in verse 10, Deuteronomy 20 is your basic section on war laws, starting in verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall come to pass that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. If, however, it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, no question about that, you shall strike all the males with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. You shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of the nations round about. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hivite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all the detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now, this passage gives us a number of things that we need to bear in mind about war in the Old Testament. The first is that when God brought Israel into the promised land, he said they were to exterminate all men, women, and children in the land and all the animals in the cities. When they invested a city such as Jericho, everything was to be burned up. In any of the other cities, at least all human life was to be taken. Now... You know, if somebody decided to move out of the promised land, that was okay. But the land had to be cleared out like the flood. And we saw before uh, God himself brought the flood to pass, and God enlists his hosts to help him this time. As man matures, God gives more and more responsibility to these things over into our hands. Well, that's only true for the land of Canaan, because their iniquity had come to the full. <coughs> Now, there's no other occasion in which Israel would ever attack anybody because they were not allowed to be aggressors. So the situation that's described here, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. We have to fill in some background. That could never come to pass on its own. Israel could never just decide they're going to go over into Mesopotamia somewhere and attack a city. Well, we've decided to attack you and we're offering you terms of peace. No, they were not allowed to do that. So, under what conditions would Israel ever be involved in fighting against a city far away? 
We have to assume that this city or nation has launched an attack against Israel. In other words, they come and attack us. We defeat them in battle, and we beat them back to the walls of their city. Okay, at this point, we have to offer them peace. Now, that gives us an additional piece of context here, which is important. Now, the offer of peace is very credible at that point. They have come in to our promised land. They have attacked us. We've already defeated them. We've chased them back to their city, and now we offer them peace. Well, that's credible, because we've already defeated them once. might not be credible, you know, uh, if we hadn't had a battle with them before, but now it's credible. Israel has already shown herself to be superior on the battlefield. If the city surrenders, it must make reparations and serve Israel. It says, Then it shall come to pass that the people who are found in it shall become forced labor and shall serve you. That doesn't mean that you have to bring them all back to Israel and turn them into slaves. It just means that they're going to have to give you tribute from now on. Their labor and their work, a certain amount of it is going to be extracted and they have to pay it to you. That is, if it makes peace. But if it refuses peace, then all the men of the city are to be killed. Now, there's some question in my mind at this point whether that means little boys as well. Sometimes you could take it that way and say, well, when the little boys grow up, they'll remember what was done and cause trouble. On the other hand, it says women and children are are taken as booty And so that would imply that it's men who are of military age, that is, according to Numbers chapter 1, 20 years and older. 20 years is the draft age for the Bible. So that's my inclination is that all the men 20 years of age and older would be put to death. Now, the threat of such a horrible vengeance was designed to provoke an early peace. That is, you've got the carrot and you've got the stick. What we learn from this is that total war and absolute surrender are not biblical principles. The carrot of negotiated peace is offered right up to the end with a stick of cultural annihilation as the alternative. Now that does not settle all the questions we have because we know that with the coming of the new covenant, all of this law system is taken in Christ, it all dies, and it's all resurrected and transfigured and glorified. As Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to glorify it, play ra'o. So, the question is, in the New Covenant, would we still do things exactly this way? And I, historically, the church has not exactly kept these rules. And I think that should give us pause for thought. I question whether some modification in just war strategy is implied by the coming of the New Covenant. The vanquished nation in the Old Testament was incorporated into Israel either by enslavement or by the elimination of the men and the simple incorporation of women and children. In the Gospel age, the integrity of each and every language and people seems to be emphasized by the multiplication of tongues at Pentecost and by the assurances of worldwide conversion. We told in the book of Revelation and everywhere else that all these nations are going to be converted. So do we need to conquer them even if they make war against us? Additionally, of course, warfare today is not conducted against small city-states, but against vast national areas. I would like to propose that in a Christian just war situation, there be no aggrandizement of the defending nation at the expense of the victor. You might extract reparations in the form of war debt, 
but you wouldn't practice colonialization nor the elimination of the entire male citizenry. Now, we are a Christian nation, and we were attacked by Mexico, and we defeated Mexico. We could extract some guarantees, war reparations, safe conduct for missionaries, uh, free trade. There are a number of things that we could extract which would give the possibility of that nation converting. We wouldn't necessarily, having defeated Mexico, we wouldn't necessarily be obligated by the Bible in the New Covenant to go through and kill every single man in Mexico. Now, otherwise that is what the law says. Mexico attacks us and we win, then we go through and we kill every single male. But the situation, I believe, is different in the New Covenant. We have the power of the gospel, which was not there in the Old Covenant. There was no power in the gospel. The labor just sat there. You had to come to the tabernacle to get the water. In the New Covenant, it's poured out, water pours out, and uh, we have power. Life has power over death. The clean converts the unclean, and that's the reverse of the way it was in the Old Covenant. Given that fact, I think we can draw as legitimate inference or at least a hypothesis that we would not destroy an entire nation once we defeat it in the battlefield, but rather what we would insist upon is safe conduct for missionaries, free trade, and other Christianizing types of things. Now, we can entertain discussion of that if you want, or we can move on. Yes? One presumption is in the, in the extension of debt, which always accompanies modern warfare within the nation fighting it, that the reparations would be used solely for the repayment of debt and the reduction to zero of all the war debt which was built up during the wartime so that the government would not aggrandize itself at the expense of the other government and then leave us in bondage to an even larger federal government than we started out with before the war, mm -hmm. which has been generally what has happened with all European nations that have involved in reparations. The nations that wind up with the reparations at the end of the war tend to be much more socialistic and much more domineering than they were before the war began. So that the the reparations should be used simply to remove the war debt entirely to reduce government debt back to where it was in the peace time. Uh -huh. Any other comments or questions? Beefs. <laughs> okay. Nothing further then. We have. Go oh, ahead. You're missing the one point that seems kind of obvious to me, and that is what would you do with all those wives you bring home? Well, you have to shave their heads and cut their nails off. Well, I'm thinking even when the hair grows back and the nails grow back, whose backs do they scratch? <laughs> <laughs> you had a situation in the Old Testament where concubines were common and household servants were common. And I, that was always a snare to them anyway. That's sort of abolished by New Testament. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true, too. Well, actually, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that that's, a, that's it's true that the ones they brought back were a snare, but when you look at the law about the beautiful captive woman, it's more or less you see this beautiful woman and you want to marry her, and so she has to circumcise her head and her hands and, and then wait 30 days and mourn and, and then all this. Uh, you wonder, the rest of them would probably have just been brought in as normal domestic slaves. But, of course, slaves are always a snare to a master. 
The slave girl always wants to get in bed with the master because then she improves her condition. True in the Old South, and I'm sure it's true in Israel. So there again, there's, there's dangers involved in this. The main point here is the offer of peace. And uh, if you read some of the material that came out of World War II from Churchill and others on total war and absolute unconditional surrender, you realize these are not biblical principles. Unconditional surrender is not. Negotiated peace, all of this gives a foundation for a negotiated peace right up to the end. And that's what is desirable. The third principle that we find after the principle of annihilating the head and, or uh, not annihilating, assassinating, the principle of assassination and the principle of the offer of peace is that the land is not to be wasted in warfare. And that's found here in Deuteronomy 20, 19 and 20. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is, this is very interesting here, for is the tree of the field a man that it should come before you in the siege? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees or trees for food. You shall destroy and cut down that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. Okay, let's get the simple natural information down first. You've gone to conduct a siege against the city. To conduct a siege, you have to cut down trees. You have to big, build big uh, apparatuses that you can roll up against the edge of the city and your guys can throw a plank over and you can go into the tops of the walls. You have to build fires underneath to try to weaken the walls, suck all the moisture out and make them brittle. You have to use trees in order to conduct siege warfare. You have to make battering rams and other things out of trees. And it would seem a little bit on the captious side for God to insist that they can't cut down any fruit or nut trees for that purpose. It's got to be coniferous trees and other trees that don't bear anything that you can eat. Now, why? We have another problem in that in modern war, there's no way to keep this kind of a law. I mean, the, the way it's said is when you besiege a city, and since we don't besiege cities anymore, then the law as it stands is irrelevant to us. We've got to pull it and make wisdom out of it and then uh, try to apply it to a modern situation. And what is the overall wisdom that's implied here? Well, it means you don't cut down fruit trees. When you make war. But notice that the rationale is given. For is the tree, is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Now that gives us a clue. Because in the Bible, trees represent people. All the way. Starts in Genesis chapter 1 and it goes all the way through. Trees are a standard figure for people. And different kinds of trees represent different kinds of people. Let's look at, well, we don't need to look at it. I'll just refresh your memory on Psalm chapter 1, which builds this whole psalm on that. The righteous man is like a tree planted firmly by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. The righteous man has good things for other people to eat. 
His leaf does not wither. The righteous man produces medicine to heal other people, which is what leaves have to do with. And whatever he does, he prospers. Now, the wicked are also like vegetables. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, all of this goes back to Genesis 1, where you will find that on the third day of the week, in the afternoon, God made fruit trees and other trees, uh, vegetables, and gave certain laws pertaining to them. And on the second half, in the afternoon of the sixth day, which two things are parallel in the text, God made man and gave him the same kind of commands. So by implication, trees represent people, plants represent people from the beginning. And so the Bible continually refers to this. Now, the passage I primarily want to bring to your attention is in the book of Judges, chapter 9, where this is made real explicit. Judges, chapter 9, verse 8. Once upon a time, the trees went forth to anoint a king over them and said to the olive tree, reign over us. Now, the olive tree is the kind of tree you don't cut down in warfare. The olive tree said, shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? That is, you know, just lording it over, not you doing absolutely nothing but asserting power for its own sake. Waving over the trees. Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to wave over the trees? And finally all the trees said to the bramble or thorn bush, You come and reign over us. Well, you put the thorn bush over you, you're putting a curse over it, aren't you? Thorns and thistles. The bramble said to the trees, yes, okay, sure, I'd love to be king. If in truth you're anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Okay, there you have made real explicit the trees represent people. So you're an ancient Israelite, and you're meditating on this passage here, and it occurs to you that the trees, there are two kinds of trees. They're the kinds of trees that are legitimately dealt with in warfare, and then there are kind of trees that are not involved in warfare. Now, what would that mean practically? We invade Mesopotamia because they fought against us, and now our army, our Israelite army, new model Israelite army, is marching into Mesopotamia, and we're going to invest Cowtown, Mesopotamia. Uh, now, along the way, there are all these people there, all these trees. What's it talking about? Who are we going to meet as we go toward Cowtown? We're going to meet a lot of people along the way. And those people will come in two categories. What are they? Guys who have swords on, right? That's one kind of person we'll meet. Guys who have swords on and have helmets. And What's the other kind of person we're going to run into as we march? Farmers, artisans, tradesmen, people who are not soldiers. What kind of trees are they? People who make things and produce things. People who till the soil. Well, they are fruitful trees. People who make things with their hand. They are fruitful trees. In other words, to put this in modern English, you don't fight civilians. That's what this means. To the ancient Israelite meditating on it, it means you don't fight civilians. You don't fight fruit trees. You fight soldiers. We'll come to that in a minute. You don't 
by fruit trees. Now, this means, again, you're not allowed to make total war against a population. You don't make war on civilians. You don't have a policy, as our government does, of aiming nuclear weapons at cities full of people. You aim nuclear weapons at military sites, not at cities full of people. You don't have mutually assured destruction. Or you're, you're making war on civilians. You don't do like England did in World War II and drop bombs all over a hospital city. And then, of course, the Germans did the same thing. You don't do that. You don't make war on civilians. You don't cut down fruit trees because, in the Bible, life has primacy over death. And the civilization-building things are more important even allowing those civilization-building activities to go on still has primacy over destroying the enemy. The long-term civilization-building things have to be preserved as much as possible in warfare. Warfare is a very temporary, short operation. But these things are long. It takes a long time for trees to grow. They don't grow up overnight. And you cut them down... You've done something that the consequences of which will be there for 20 or 30 years, at least, depending on how good the trees are and what kind they are. You don't make war on civilians. You don't try to destroy the economy. You just deal with the nation. Now, again, this is a fundamental principle. It's a principle which pagan, uh, in paganism is seldom respected. That is, the pagan hordes that swept out of Asia throughout the Middle Ages made war on civilians regularly. They just destroyed everything they could find, made mountains out of skulls. They didn't just fight military, fought everybody. And now in our modern war, we have the same thing. We fight civilians. Now, that doesn't mean that that raises a whole bunch of problems. If you do have to drop bombs, you're going to destroy some fruit trees. And so, as we said, this applies directly in siege warfare. God says, if, you actually, if we actually had siege warfare today, which we don't, cities today don't even have walls around them, what good would a wall do around a city today? No good. Once you invent cannons, the walls come down. Once gunpowder was discovered and cannons were made, that was the end of siege warfare. But if we had siege warfare, we would not be allowed to cut down any fruit trees even if they were just the right thing for us to get at hand. But we don't have siege warfare anymore, and so we have other kinds of war. And, of course, you drop bombs, and bombs are going to destroy all different kinds of trees. That's not a sin. But it does mean as much as possible it is incumbent upon uh, those in a position to decide military tactics to apply this principle, not to waste the economy of the other nation not to destroy civilians as much as possible. Now, when we fought in Vietnam, this law was not applied. We destroyed their whole national economy with the way we fought the war. The, uh, one of the primary exports of South Vietnam was teak wood. And after a few years of bullets and grenades and bombs, there was not a tree left growing in South Vietnam that didn't have pieces of metal in it, shrapnel in it. Well, you can't run those through a sawmill. And that was the end of their whole economy in that area. Defoliants. See, all we had to do was just assassinate Ho Chi Minh. 
than in every one of his successors in turn until they stopped. We're back to the same basic principles. All these things are a package. You fight the warmongers. You don't fight children. You assassinate the leadership. You don't make war on civilians. You don't waste the land. It's a matter of how you fight. And, of course, our military people wanted to do that kind of thing, but the politicians who ran the military didn't. This is just a footnote. I don't know if I need to even say this considering the uh, you all, but it's worth reminding that military people are the ones who see civilians die in warfare. Uh, cameramen for CBS do not have the same degree of sympathy for civilians as military people do. Cameramen from CBS fly in uh, the onion field, on onion field, the killing fields. They see people dying. They take pictures of them. They're moved. They're horrified. And then they fly out. Army personnel go in. They see people dying. They try to minister to them as best they can with their medical equipment. They live with it day in and day out. So, military people historically, at least in Christian lands such as ours, have been the most concerned about destroying civilian populations and the most insistent that military actions ought to be prosecuted in a military fashion. It's the civilians who run the military in our government who wanted to make war on the civilians in Vietnam, who have our weapons pointed at cities in Russia instead of army camps in Russia. That's the problem we live with. But your average military guy, he doesn't want to make war on civilians. He just wants a clean, quick end of the war. They would have loved to just eliminate Ho Chi Minh and end it real quick. But that was never allowed. So there you've got these moral problems that come up because biblical laws are not being followed, biblical principles. And, of course, that's just about destroyed the morale in our country for a, a considerable period of time. All right, we've had three principles Well, then. Assassination. Offering peace right down the line, a negotiated peace as much as possible. And you do not waste the land and make war on civilians. As much as possible, you seek to preserve the economy of the other nation for your own good as well. I mean, you, once you win, you want their economy in force. You're going to benefit from it. We did some think, we've done some right things in the United States. The Marshall Plan was a right thing to do, you see. As much as possible, rebuild the economies of these nations. I'm not interested in debating exactly how the Marshall Plan was done, but as an idea, it was a good idea. Our firmest allies have been West Germany and Japan. It wasn't the way things were done after World War I. After we defeated the nations in World War I, they came back at us in World War II. But if you try a little kindness, you open up the blindness. All right. The third principle is the principle of universal draft. The Bible shows us repeatedly that every citizen is required to come when the trumpet's blown. In Israel, when a man was put to death, every citizen of the place was required to cast a stone. Nobody was allowed to absent himself from affirming ritual affirmation of public justice. Leviticus 24, verse 14 Bring the one who has cursed God outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and then let all the congregation stone him with stones. Similarly, Deuteronomy 13, verse 9, 
You shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And in chapter 17, verse 7, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Thus you shall purge evil from your midst. Now this doesn't mean that the man was killed by being struck by stones. Possibly that's true. But from what we can tell, uh, the way they stoned people to death was to take them up on a high place and cast them down. That's what they tried to do to Jesus in Luke 4. Cast them down, drop a big rock on them, crush their heads so that they died quickly. And then there was a ritual. Everybody in the place had to walk by and toss a brick on the pile so that there'd be this big mound of stones over this guy, a permanent memorial pillar or mound to this guy's death. And everybody had to do it. Nobody was permitted to disagree with the justice as it was administered. Even if you disagreed in your heart, even if you thought that this man was innocent and shouldn't have been put to death, you still had to cast a stone. Because you're not, when you cast a stone, you're not saying, I agree that this guy was guilty and should have been put to death. Because you are not the judge. The judges, whoever they are, they made that decision that the guy is guilty. And they have put him to death. Now, when you and I walk by and toss a stone on it, we are affirming, ritually affirming, the system of justice. You get the difference? Maybe I know this guy was innocent. And it's a travesty of justice that he was put to death. Okay, but I still throw a rock because I affirm the system of justice. God will deal with the individual situation later, but I affirm the system of justice by putting a stone on the pile. And everybody has to do that. The same thing is true in warfare. When Israel made war on Benjamin in Judges chapter 20 and 21, the city of Jabesh-Gilead refused to supply any troops, and that city was destroyed for that reason. Look at Judges chapter 21. Now, Judges 21 is the, new, the rebirth of the tribe of Benjamin. God does three different things. The tribe of Benjamin is almost completely destroyed, and God does three different things to rebuild and grant resurrection to that tribe. The first thing in chapter 21 of Judges, verses 1 through 7, is that a burnt offering and peace offering is made. And because the burnt offering is made to take away the sins of Benjamin, and because the peace offering is made... God offers peace to these 600 men who are left over from Benjamin. And so the tribes go and they speak peace to Benjamin. Benjamin accepts God's peace on God's terms, and thus they are saved. The second thing that happens is, since there aren't any women left, you've got to have wives for these 600 men. And they get wives uh, from the town of Jabesh-Gilead, then they also get wives from the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in the last part of the book that there was Sadie Hawkins' day, and all the girls went out and danced. And it actually says they all went out into labor. <laughs> it says, Go lie and wait in the vineyards and watch, and behold, the daughters of Shiloh come out and go into labor. Well, they didn't go into labor. They danced. And so it says they take part in dances. But the only... The word that's used there means going to labor. It doesn't mean dance. It means they were dancing, you know, your old husband catching dance. And so the idea here is a new birth 
because these girls are dancing. The particular ritual dance that they danced was the one that said, you know, I'm available, marry me, and I'll give you lots of children. And so uh, that's what this is all about. It's not the rape of the Sabine women. It's a good picture that God at his festival, at his tabernacle, gives brides to these men. And uh, it's all real upbeat and positive here. Don't allow traditional interpretations to mess up your understanding. But the other thing, that, the third thing that God does, and this is actually the second thing in the text, is he gets some wives from Jabesh Gilead. And the question is asked in verse 8, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, where they summoned them all to come? Behold, no one had come from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, drafted, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody had to come, but at least a representative from that city had to be there. The congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors and commanded them, saying, Go strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with a sword, along with the women and the little ones, and this you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who is known lying with a man. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, and they married Benjamin. All right. Similarly, in Judges chapter 8, we read that the cities of Succoth and Penuel were punished for not supporting Gideon. They were supposed to send troops and support Gideon. Once the battle came into their place, they didn't. Similarly, and, and they were punished. Similarly, in Judges chapter 5, there was a town called Meroz, which was in the middle of the battle of Megiddo. They refused to send anybody to help fight, and so they were cursed. Curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Okay, now... Next week, we'll spend time looking at this principle of the universal draft and how it worked. Everybody was called. Once you got there, you could, and after you'd paid your war tax, then you could go home. If you just got married, if you just bought a new field, uh, just built a new house, or if you were scared to fight, you could go home. And plenty of them did. Remember Gideon's band? God kept sending them home. But they all had to come. They all had to come. And we'll look, look at that and how it differs from the modern American form of the draft. Different, it, it, it's the opposite of it at almost every point, uh, considering how it's worked out. But the fourth principle is that God required of his people an affirmation, be it only ritual affirmation, of everything that went on that was just. So even if you knew you weren't going to fight in the battle because you'd just gotten married, you still had to show up when the trumpet was blown, pay your half-shekel war tax, and then you could go home. But you had to make the affirmation. You had to show up. You had to be there on the parade field for that one ceremony that said, we're behind you all away. Then you could go home. Real important. Everybody has to be involved. Well, that's a biblical principle of warfare. Now, what's the cash value of that? Well, it means that, uh, and we'll get to this, you don't, uh, we'll look at this next time. You're the, uh, you're in charge. Okay? So you want to fight a battle. You, you'd like to go and attack Mexico. 
Texas would like to attack Mexico, the great Texas-Mexico War of 1986. All right, so I'm a governor of Texas, and we'd like to attack Mexico. But we happen to know for a fact that 99% of the population of the state of Texas is not interested in attacking Mexico. Now, since the, since the requirement is for universal participation, that gives the people this tremendous counterweight. And we're not talking democracy, but we are talking a counterweight to the power of the establishment. Because when you call everybody together, everybody's together, and you say, hey, we're all going to attack Mexico. What might happen? What did happen in Israel? What do we have to do with you, house of David, to your tents, O Israel? See, dangerous. The U.S. government found that out. They drafted everybody in the Vietnam War, and all these people who were drafted didn't want to fight. They didn't like going over there and killing 12-year-olds and seeing little kids blown up. They didn't like it. And so they came back and they forced the United States out of the Vietnam War. Kind of stupid to have a universal draft. If you want to be a warmonger, you're a lot better off with a professional army or some mercenaries. When God requires a universal draft, that means the people have this tremendous power and weight. Remember the king of, who was the king? Charles I, right? Who called uh, Parliament? Made a big mistake. Parliament all got there and they said, hey, uh, no, we're not going to do what you want. We're going to do what we want. We're going to cut your head off and put Cromwell in charge. It's dangerous. And of course, he had, he had failed to call Parliament for over a decade because he knew that this might happen. So, if you're a warmonger, you think twice before you blow the trumpet because when everybody comes together, they just might decide to turn you out of office. So it's a real important principle here, isn't it, universal draft. So we're all in favor of the universal draft around here. Rightly understood. Now there's another principle, and we'll talk about it El Quico here, so that we'll be done with these five principles. The other thing we notice in the book of Judges is that Jabesh Gilead was wiped out, all the men and all the women except for the girls who had never been married uh, or never been, never slept with a man. Now, Meroz was utterly and completely cursed, wiped out. Nobody even knows where it is. Archaeologists may waste their lot of time trying to find it, but they never will. Succoth and Penuel, when Gideon dealt with them, he just took the 70 leaders and he, he killed the leaders of one city, as I recall. I'm supposed to know this inside and out, but who can remember all these details? Well, he not burned down their tower and he took the leaders out of the other city and he scourged them with scorns of the wilderness and briars, made them feel the curse, the thorns. Now, uh, in, in the Song of Deborah, we also have people who didn't show up. The divisions of Reuben and Gilead remained across the Jordan, and Dan stayed in ships, and Asher stayed in the seashore. Now, why didn't uh, now Deborah gets her revenge on them with this song? It says that the Song of Deborah is going to be sung at all the watering places. I can imagine for the next... 500 years, every time the song of Deborah was sung, the uh, people of the tribe of Dan and Asher and Gilead and Reuben got red in the face. Kind of permanent humiliation to have uh, one of the pieces of the liturgy mention you by name and how much of a coward you were. It'd be interesting, you know, put in our liturgy a list of all the people in the church 
and what they didn't didn't do. So it's publicly enshrined forever. So you get the get the feel for this now when you uh, when you make it come home. Well, how come they didn't just you know how come Deborah and her army didn't just march on up to Dan and wipe all of them out because they didn't come? Why this difference in degree of punishment? And the answer is because of the fifth principle, and that is localism. Those who are near the battle are expected to send more men and support the war more heavily than those farther away. Some token of support was expected from every tribe. How much was expected depended on the seriousness of the situation. At any rate, the principle is that local men defend their local situations. We don't have a national army situation here. So, what was rightly expected was at least one or two guys come from each tribe. At least some token representation from everybody. But if the battle was near to you, then you expected everybody to show up. So there's a principle of localism there, too. Uh, it's not an abstraction. But there is some degree of universal support and participation. Okay. Next time, we will look more closely at the Israelite militia, because that's where all this came from, a study of the militia. And uh, we'll look at how the Israelite militia functioned and the powers of the Israelite militia as a counterweight to the central government, some of the other principles. But these are the five overall principles of warfare. Crushing the head, offering peace, negotiated peace all the way down, not making war against civilians and wasting the land, Universal participation, from, universal participation from everybody, and localism. Let's stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom and guidance of your word. We ask that you would reform our nation and help us to return to it. We ask that you would bless those men who are advocating high frontier and mutually assured survival, and that you would confound those who would make us even more of a warmongering nation than we already are. Help our governors and leaders to become sane in their approach to our defense. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.